Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences we're going to be at in Europe. Specifically, NDC happening June 12th through the 16th in Oslo, Norway. All the usual suspects will be there. Hey, and they even let us in. But don't hold that against them. No. Well, this is their big show, Richard, the original NDC. Yeah, which we've been going to for like eight years. That's right. We don't know exactly what we'll be doing yet, but you can expect a great panel discussion. Yeah, and of course, we'll be in the fishbowl making some great .NET rock shows for your listening pleasure. So go to ndcoslo.com and register now. And for more great NDC conferences, go to ndcconferences.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, hey, Stephen Borg's going to be joining us pretty soon. Indeed. We're going to talk to him about some really cool things. And uh, I'm at home. This is a kind of a weird thing. Uh, I'm in my home studio. I have the same kind of booth that I have at the recording studio. And uh, I've, uh, you know, it sounds okay, but you're engineering. And this is uh, an interesting thing for you. Well, and it's, you know, I do engineering for uh, Run As Radio, but it's not always as many people and so forth. So when you ask me if I will engineer, I get kind of excited. It's like, oh, good, I get to exercise some more equipment. So for every show we've recorded today, I've had to run around and move a couple of wires and change a couple more things. And I'm just trying, you know, it's a lot of perfectioning in trying to get all of this just right. But uh, true, I'm true, pretty happy. True. Uh, it, it, it definitely looks like a couple of Borg threw up on my desk right now. Like there's wires and crap all over the place. But he's right here. He's listening. <laughs> How that, can you say that, not man? Not that Borg. Wrong kind of Borg. <laughs> that's, a, that's a line uh, from an old girlfriend. I kept a TRS-80 Model 1 alive until like the 90s. And I'd, yeah. I'd had to move it to another case that I was, re- I was replacing traces off the boards because they were flaking off. That's how old this thing was. Yeah, and this yeah. new girlfriend comes by, looks in that case, and goes, wow, it looks like R2-D2 threw up in here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy. What do you got? Ah, well, I found something very cool on um, on the internets. And this is some guidance around Azure and SQL. It's called Azure Cat and SQL Cat. That's cool. Yeah, like C-A-T. Ah, okay. And this is sort of a blog from Microsoft Developer. It's Azure Cat Guidance. Hello, world. Welcome to Azure Cat Guidance. What is it? It stands for Customer Advisory Team. We work with customers who act as feedback advisors back to our product teams by working on engagements with those customers and building groundbreaking solutions. We then have unique lessons we've learned from those solutions, and thus we publish them back to you to show you these insights, architectures, lessons learned, best practices, and emerging patterns with Microsoft products like Azure, SQL Server, Power BI, Visual Studio, and DevTools, and more. Wow. And so if you just sort of scroll down and look at all of the stuff that they have, they have checklists for patterns and practices on cloud and uh, cloud design patterns and resiliency guidance, um, technical customer profiles where they actually talked about the systems that they implemented at like BMW, Mesh Systems, Quorum Business Solutions, Schneider Electric, some conceptual articles, code samples, tools, how-to guides. 
um, amazing st- articles, white papers, just a huge laundry list of resources uh, that, you know, that can help people jump in. Nice. And I find places like this are hard to find on the internet where there's just a whole bunch of concentrated links and information in one place. Yeah, a bunch of smartness right here. You know, it reminds me of the old P&P. Remember the Patterns and Practices guys? I don't think those that team even exists anymore. This looks like modern yeah. P&P. It really is. And and like like they say in the, you know, the first message there, it all came out of experiences that they had with customers. And, you know, so you don't have to make the same mistakes. It's great stuff. Nice find, man. I love it. And it's free. Very cool. I can't argue with the price, can you? Yep. So, uh, who's talking to us today, Richard? Grab the comment off of show 1239, which we did back in January of 2016. So, a little over a year ah. ago now with Brian Randall. We were talking about the Microsoft DevOps stack. And, of yep. course, various bits came up in that. And uh, although, admittedly, this is a year-old comment, so it's a little unfair, I'm just interested in bringing it up, and maybe we can talk to Steve a bit about it as well. Okay. It's from Richard Roberts, who says, we are using Release Management 2013. That's the on-premise edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and found this link, and it's a link to an article uh, about the uh, the changes to Team Foundation Server and, and things like that, and how they recommend okay. moving to the web version of VSTS and hinting that the on-premise version will not be upgraded or viable. Is there truth to this statement? Now, of course, it's mm. a year later, so you know for sure it's not true. T- TFS right. has continued doing what it's always done. And it's funny that the article he's linked to has continued to be updated. In fact, it's up to date as of with a couple of weeks ago. Um, huh. It just talks about more of what you can do on-prem, what you can do in the cloud, and so forth. Um, we have invested, and, and, but you can understand why Richard Roberts is concerned, right? We've invested time in our approach and want to keep our tech stack moving forward and improved. Have we painted ourselves in the corner? Any feedback is welcome. And uh, right. I'll say simply, yeah, I think you're probably fine. Release management, of course, when in 2013 edition, that was the, that was the InCycle product that had just gotten acquired. So right. it, uh, it was very early days. Uh, and obviously that stuff's evolved a lot, but, uh, we'll, we'll throw Steve at that comment as well and uh, see what he has to say. Yeah. So Richard, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Cause we publish every show to Facebook and Google Plus. And if we comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin and he's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We turn them into cat food. Really? Yeah. Azure cat. Sequel cat. <laughs> Call back. That's, that's where we're going. See what All I right. did there? Is that what that All was? Right. Okay. It was so bad, it wasn't funny. It was funny and how not funny it was. You know, I have both a dog and a cat. And uh, <laughs> and I, I remind everyone, it's like, if I, if I died, my dog would lie beside me and mourn. Uh, my mm. cat would eat my face. <laughs> because cats are cats are evil, right? I mean, just to be very clear. It's not... <laughs> a cat's only ever seen you as a source of food whether you deliver the food or you are the food no difference it's all the same so true <laughs> here boy <laughs> are you kidding me are you kidding me all right let's uh introduce steven borg it's been a long time since we've had steven on the show it's almost embarrassing steven started as a mathematician for the u.s government before founding northwest cadence a services firm specializing in the business value of software and advanced analytics with an exuberant passion for the cloud and making analytics approachable he spent nearly two decades improving software design processes and systems 
He's also a Microsoft DevOps MVP and a happily married father of three rambunctious boys. And on a related note, in the spring of 2016, he started a ketogenic diet after discovering Carl's Two Keto Dudes podcast. How cool is that? Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And Carl, Ple- huge thanks on the uh, the tips for keto. It's been a best diet I've been on. It, uh, not even a diet, best lifestyle I've been on. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a switch, you know. Uh, the ketogenic diet, for those who don't know, is uh, uh, a high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carbohydrate, almost zero-carbohydrate diet. And uh, it, it clears up a variety of health issues that we previously had no idea we, we even had. Um, so um, I just wanted to say one thing before we get going, that um, the Two Keto Dudes podcast spurned a uh, Facebook group, a closed Facebook group, which in nine months grew to over 13,000 people. And that was a closed group. That means we had to allow every single one of those people in. Uh, and we shut it down recently because um, managing a Facebook group of that size is impossible. And you start playing whack-a-mole with people who keep asking the same questions. Well, not the same people, but the same questions keep being asked over and over again. And people won't scroll up three comments to see that it has already been answered and it just became unbearable. So we started a public forum with Discourse, which is Jeff Atwood's software, Jeff Atwood from Stack Overflow. And Discourse uh, is great. He's thought deeply about communities and, and how they should work and how to keep out trolls and spammers and how to gamify it so that everybody is invested in in, in producing uh, a great content, you know, and great knowledge base. And so that is at www.ketogenicforums.com. It's free. And I urge anybody who's interested in this uh, way of eating to check it out, by the way. And I don't have diabetes anymore, and I've lost 80 pounds, so something's going right. (laughs) Well, it worked for you anyway. It worked for me. That's right. It it can be hard to get going on, and it can be hard to to commit to at first, but, you know, if you get over that hump, uh, it's... It's so, so awesome. You know, my, you know, what my snack was between shows today? Brie. Chunk of Brie. The best. Chunk of Brie. Best snack in the world, man. Just on bacon, even better. Yeah. Yeah. You put Brie on the bacon, (laughs) use the bacon as a cracker, man. That's amazing. That's good stuff. And pork rinds. (laughs) Pork rinds. Pork rinds and Parmesan cheese in a food processor make the best breading for fried chicken or fish or shrimp, anything. Love it. All right, enough of that. Yep. Wrong show. Wrong show. <laughs> I will come back to that question because I think Steve. that is one of the most yeah. common questions I hear is this, is TFS going away now that we have Visual Studio Team Services? Right. And mm-hmm. and I think it's a misconception. Definitely, uh, VSTS is out there, really popular and gaining popularity. But TFS has a remarkably large footprint sure. in, in our industry and it's not going away mm. it's not going away anytime soon right it's also not a trivial thing to deploy right like it's not small to get a good tfs infrastructure on premise up and running it's I, I think if you get a chance to start from scratch going to the cloud is very tempting well richard you run an exchange server in your closet yes I which a- is more difficult to uh, run and install and maintain exchange or tfs i think uh, 
I think you live in more fear of Exchange, but Exchange is a single server install. <laughs> T- T- TFS yeah. is a distributed install. It's a more complicated install. There's a lot of moving yeah. parts to TFS. Exchange sure. are super simple. The only difference is that TFS doesn't keep you up at night. You can, cause you can back that thing up. You, backing up an exchange server, you might as well hit yourself in the head with a hammer. It'll hurt less and not take as long. Fear based <laughs> IT. That's it. <laughs> I, I still haven't made that shirt, but I'd say uh, I run my own exchange server because I like being afraid all the time. <laughs> it, it, Richard, that is crazy. Thank I, you. When we moved from Exchange office to, off to Office 365, that was just such an amazing relief for our whole company. It just, ah, yeah, it went, when Exchange goes down, everybody freaks oh, yeah. out. Everyone's running around trying to fix it. Now, if yeah. Office 365 ever had a problem, I, I'd just go make angry tweets, yeah, right? That's all I'd have to do. Yeah, that's the main thing the cloud gives you, somebody else to blame, right? Like That's, <laughs> the, that's the <laughs> fundamental change. So, yeah, it, I, I, I'm with you, man. Uh, and, uh, I like being able to, to look an exchange server guy in the eye and go, look, I feel your pain. But, uh, yeah, it's getting old. The, the next, this latest round of servers in my lab are aging, are getting close to aging out. And it's going to be very tough to replace them. Just the, the, that was my cloud architecture. I've got, you know, multiple servers that I can move workloads back and forth on. I've had that experience now. I feel comfortable with it. So as they age out and I just can't trust them anymore, I think I'm just going to shift workloads up. You heard it here first, folks. It's enough. Enough already. <laughs> enough. Yeah. And I think people have that feeling with TFS. They've yeah. been running it on premises. They've been backing it up. They've had to you know, potentially restore it. They've gone through upgrade cycles. And I think it's enough. People are really anxious to take that entire cost off of their shoulders, all that risk, all that work, and just drop it into the cloud. And, and frankly... Now, don't say that lightly, sir. The same way that I'm looking at what it's going to take to actually move my exchange mailboxes in the cloud. If you've got 10 years of TFS on your in your company, how do you get that up to team services? Like that's not a small thing. It's not. It's a it, it is a it's an effort. Um, luckily, Microsoft has pulled together a great tool um it, they have an on deck program it's it's private now but you can get an invite for it and and basically they've built an entire import service that you can run on premises nice or actually run in azure and it'll pull all that stuff up to vsts it keeps all your links your work items are the same frankly it's incredible it's again it's not a trivial thing but it's 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 powerful i'll bet you this tool i can envision this tool because there's one for it for exchange because there's a whole bunch of homework you have to do first, right? Make sure you're in this state. Like, it's a bunch of checklist items and things you need to test and so forth mm. before you then do your initial stage in a test migration. And I'm, I, I'm guessing, but I bet you I'm right. Oh, Be- you're absolutely right. Because, there's a lot to get there. Yeah. And they, the like migrating from one version to Exchange server to another, and I can't believe I'm still talking about Exchange, there's these great tools that do exactly that same thing. The only problem with them is you'll get to a section that says, you need to do check with your administrator. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm the administrator. What the hell is that? <laughs> I have no idea what you just said. What is that? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fair. Although Microsoft, I've got to say on this product, they've done a really good job of putting all that craziness, all those WTF moments right up at the beginning. Right. So you're running the prep tool and that's where you get hammered with all of these things. Yeah. And granted, yeah. it, it is 
90% of the effort really is getting your current environment up and ready. And clean, like stable, push. reliable, all the things are working, like before you touch anything. So that everything's operational. When one would argue, you get to the bottom of that checklist, you probably have a better TFS install than you've had for years. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. Why migrate now? Because it's awesome right now. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I why migrate now? I can I switch topics for just a moment? Please, is, sir. Yeah, sure. Is moving folks off onto VSTS from TFS, it radically changes their relationship with their DevOps and their ALM practices as well. And the reason is people on premises don't often update their TFS more than once every couple of years. Oh, yeah. No, you finally get it running. Don't touch it. Exactly. Right. And what happens is that you go through this cycle and you've missed all of these updates. Right. VSTS updates every you know three weeks. You get new features. You get new capabilities. It's 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 amazing. And, and you don't get to decide. Those features are coming. That's all there is to it. Yes. And sometimes you're given a demo and I'll be walking through and some UI feature has moved and you got to go <laughs> spelunking around to find it. But that's I, I recognize that tone, that pain right there. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes... So it used to be right here, everyone. Now it's gone. <laughs> uh, you can always find it. <laughs> so Where did I've got to go? tell a story. I was I was over at a, at a at a customer site, and I was talking with the manager of a team, and they have TFS, and that's kind of the corporate standard. And they have a team that's really DevOps centric, pushing into Azure, right. really fast delivery cycle. It kind of the team you really want. And I said, oh, are you building out of TFS, the corporate standard? And the manager there said, no, we looked at TFS and there is no way that it's, it's too slow. It's too complicated. It's way too confusing for our developers to use. Uh, they were on TFS 2013. Oh, and, man. And, yeah, I know. And I was a little nervous about that. So I went and talked with the actual devs on the team and asked them, so what are you using? And his answer was VSTS. Right. And so <laughs> here's this dichotomy, this manager who had expected TFS to be this terrible thing and 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 not as usable and where did they go vsts which right. is which is simply the newest incarnation it's the same product just running in the cloud yeah and running four years later right so they'd yeah. missed four years of that development yeah and so it just it just solidified in my mind that if you want to keep track keep pace with what's happening in the world you either have to be really good on premises with upgrading every three months or you need to get up to VSTS. Right. Yeah. Just get off that thing entirely. Yeah. Interesting truth, sir. That's just like, because you don't have a team that's maintaining that infrastructure for you. Like you've got, you're busy. There's other things to do. So it, it's, uh, it's going to fall behind. It's, it's infrastructure. It does. And as soon as yep. you lose that cadence, it gets riskier and riskier to upgrade. People yep. have to go through long planning cycles to upgrade and test upgrades, et cetera. It just happens in the cloud. And yeah. and I gave up running TFS on-premises a long time ago, and I've never looked back. Funny. All right. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. 
That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. So should we talk analytics? I would love to talk some analytics. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that I fell in love with TFS in the early days was as a manager of developers, it was a way for me to check in on my developers without actually interrupting them. And I, I, I borrowed mm. the Stephen Covey line that was, you can't help flowers grow by yanking them out of the ground to see how the roots are doing, right? Like interrupting a developer is like yanking the plant out of the ground. You, you yeah. don't want to interrupt them. And, and the best gauge I had was watching check-ins. You know, different developers check in in different ways, but every developer checks in at least once a day. Many do several days. But if a guy hasn't checked in for three days, what do you bet that on the fourth day is going to be the greatest check-in known to man? Right. Like, right. That's, just, that's so unlikely. And so this, for me as an administrator, you know, as a guy trying to, to, to keep my team productive, rather than having to, to, uh, catch them in the, in the stand up or bug them in their offices, the fact that I could just watch that check in cadence go, wow, you know, Bob hasn't been seen in a couple of days. And then when you do stick your head in his office, he's smacking his head on the keyboard, right? Like he's thrashing. And then it's right. time to interrupt them and have a cup of coffee and how you do and what can we do to get you productive. That to right. me was the best. The first thing that I grabbed onto TFS was my ability as a leader of developers to see what my team was up to. Right. Richard, I like the way you did that. You went and looked at the code that people were committing and that cadence of code commits. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a, there's a tendency of leadership to very often focus just on the work items and are people closing the work items appropriately, et cetera. Right. But that sometimes is a poor proxy for the actual success of that team and the actual delivery cadence of the team. When you look at the code, you can see some really interesting stuff. Sure. And and you're hoping that some of that code is test code. So your real metric is it's passing the tests. Because it, it's, a, it's a very personal thing to decide when to check off a work item is done. Right. It is. Uh, Jeff Levinson, who used to work here at Northwest Gaidens, he had a he had a way of of doing assessments when he was talking to people about uh, their development life cycle. Mm -hmm. And he would walk in and he'd never ask to see their requirements. He'd ask to see their test cases. Nice. How mm -hmm. are you testing those requirements? Because what the requirement doc said is not at all necessarily reflective of what the code is actually doing and what you're trying to test. And I think you get a lot more insight when you look at the testing, when you look at the way people are developing. It's that end-to-end -end view that makes VSTS so powerful. Right. Yeah, I, I agree that it is a viewpoint. But I'm to be honest, like I'm not up to speed on the latest version of VSTS, so I'd love to know like what's the better visibility. Like what what is the view of a project look like from a console like that now? 
It's crazy. They've introduced so many things in the past just six months for increasing that visibility that it's it's kind of mind-blowing, and it's tough to know where to start. Hmm. Uh, but let's talk dashboards for just a moment. Um, an easy sure. way you can build out dashboards to view things like your how your code is doing, how many check-ins you have. Uh, you can look you know, check-ins per developer per day if you wanted to do that kind of gut feel. For contributions, um, you can always do, of course, the evil lines of code per developer per day, which is a terrible metric. It. Just say no. <laughs> Just say no. Use your reporting powers for good, not evil. Well, <laughs> people do more of what gets measured, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. If you're measuring lines of code, you're going to get more lines of code. Ask me how I know, right? Like that, that's the reality, right? Whatever you measure, people are then going to use as, as their gauge of success. You, you better wanted more of it. Yep. And now you're going to get it, even if it turns around and it's bad for the organization mm -hmm. as a whole. And that's the danger of metrics. It's the danger of tagging any one metric as the the end all and be all metric that you follow. Uh, you should have a core set of metrics that then, that then shift over time. Right. And by putting those up on a dashboard, you get that view every day of things coming in and out, what's happening, just just kind of that snapshot view, the really quick view, and you're not just looking at work items. Uh, that's the thing that I think differentiates VSTS and TFS from other tools like like Jira and other 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 platforms, which are great work tracking tools, but that don't give you that broad visibility across the entire development. And until you get that linkage, you're missing something, and you're missing something that's really concrete and how fast you're able to deliver. And let me give you one more, because mm -hmm. I, I, okay. because you have that, right? You've, you've tied those pieces together. In, in VSTS, I might open up a bug, and then I'm going to do some code, and I'm going to take that code, and I'm going to commit it, and I'm going to resolve that bug based on that commit. So the code I wrote was directly related to that bug that I just fixed. Mm -hmm. um, just a few weeks ago, I implemented another, I do it everywhere I go, a crappy code report. And if you have this, this metric, if people have tied bugs to their source code. In VSTS, you can rip open every bug, basically, look at every code file that was changed, and count how many times that file has participated in a bug fix. Nice. Wow. What's so interesting is it bubbles up to the top, and 80% of the bugs are found in a relatively small amount of code, 10 to 20% of right. the actual code files. And this hasn't got less to do with people and more to do, I think, with timing. Like what you're really manifesting there is technical debt. That's a really good point. Um, and being able to measure that technical debt, I think, is is absolutely critical. And and looking at it. I come at this from an operations viewpoint where most technical debt actually lands on operations. When we started instrumenting how often you had to reboot a server, you know, how often you were dealing with that kind of crisis, like all of those things that ultimately came back to this program's having problems and it's these particular features and those were the ones that made that tight deadline. And that's technical debt, dude. That, that's what that is. That's how it's manifest. It is. And it's manifest. And then it flows back to the developers as, you know, go fix these bugs, go fix these changes. Right. And, and, it, and it sets up that antagonism between the ops and the dev side of the house. Mm -hmm. And in today's world, that just won't cut it. You can't deliver fast enough if you've got a wall standing up between dev and between ops. Yeah. It, and we can eliminate that. And, and, you know, that's, I think, a good place to go too. is how do we understand, given TFS, or VSTS, where we're going to go 
in term, where do we end? Where is done? Is done when the developer checks in the code and it hasn't been tested? Is done right. after the tester gets a look at it? Is done after the sprint is complete and it's checked into a repository? Or is done when it's all the way into production and we've gotten feedback from customers? And, and I'd argue the latter, that until we get something back in and we get some feedback from the customers, we really shouldn't be counting these things yeah. as done. Well, and so and wanting to be test-driven around all this, Part of what I've been doing, and of course, I worked in e-commerce extensively on this, is we would talk about e context of features as how much revenue they would generate. That our threshold, you know, we would actually speculate. We want to build these things, and this is what we think will have the impact on the system. So we're going to put a, a put a bar out there. This many customers, we expect this many customers to use it in the first month and to generate this additional revenue, like really to start push on those numbers. And when you make those goals, throw a big party. Like, because it, it's a big deal that, and everybody now has a set of goals that everyone contributed to. That's exactly where people should be looking. We tend to myopically focus on what features are we delivering, mm -hmm. but not what is the value, what's the impact to the business of those features. Yeah. And, and what you're discussing or describing, I think, falls into this kind of new paradigm of hypothesis-driven development. Yep. We're, you know, we're going to say, we we suppose, we bet, we guess, we have a hypothesis that this thing will drive this kind of behavior with our customers. Let's measure. Let's mm -hmm. put in some instrumentation. It can be through app insights. It can be any number of instrumenting tools. And then cycle back. Let's take that feedback and find out, did it make the impact we were expecting? And I, and I like having that instrumentation because we're even when it doesn't make the numbers, we're still all on the same side of the problem, right? We all made our contributions to try and get there. Now we're looking at the metrics and going, hey, you know, this didn't, wasn't as interesting to the customer as we thought it would be. They're not using it much or they're having this problem. It's the, or it's not fast enough. Like all of these things are possibilities now, but you're still all on the same side of a problem, right? It's not, it, it was operations versus it was development versus security, you know, made all this impossible. It's, we're looking at how the customer reacted to it and, and the customer is nicely amorphous there. So they can, you can, <laughs> you, they can be the, the them. Right. You know, I, I was at Microsoft working with a team and I was very interested. They have a, they had a bunch of scrum teams delivering and they said, when, when are we done? And the, the leadership team there was run by a guy named Karthik Ravindran. And I remember Karthik just kind of, it was almost a lecture to the to the scrum masters and the teams. He said, done isn't when you're done coding and it's potentially shippable. Done is when it's in production. And they had this barrier between the development and ops teams. And what happened is when the dev teams couldn't get credit for being done until it was in production, they started to change their behaviors. They started working more closely with the operations yeah. teams, started having coffee and beer together. It, it changed the entire culture of those teams and it caused that integration. And it was, that's just a metric, right? A metric that caused them to you know, fall into the pit of successes or. Mm, absolutely. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time for me to try and think of a joke about VSTS and analytics and <laughs> DevOps. It's just, it's just not funny. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Done, 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 done. It's actually time to give away a Music to Code by Complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
Music to Code By, of course, is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus and get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans all over the world are being more productive with Music to Code By, as are many other people, not developers. You can download the entire 13-track collection, maybe 14 by now, who knows, for only 39 bucks. See what all the fuss is about. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Jonathan Zimmerman. Congratulations, Jonathan. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, golf clap for you, sir. Jonathan wins the entire collection of Music to Code by. That's a, several hours of, uh, of uh, music just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club and just because we like him. And so if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, now it's your turn, Stephen Borg. If you had five grand to spend on technology today, what do you think you'd buy? Whew, that's a lot of money. I, uh, I, I need another sous vide machine. Mine, uh, was yeah. about two and a half years old and it's died and I, it kills me to not have that. So my first thing's a new sous vide machine. Um, which one did you have, Stephen? I had a really old German style brand. I don't even remember. It was a big boxy looking thing, like a, a, a bread machine. You know, oh, it so just it was had, actually an immersion circulation pump. It's an immersion circulation pump. It's it's in the whole container. I'd definitely move to one of the newer ones, like a Jewel or an Anova. Yeah, the Anova is only a hundred bucks. The Suvi stick. Yeah, it's only a couple hundred bucks. So I, it, it's uh, that's just a start, I suppose. But uh, something I need to replace. I, the rest of it, and maybe really all of it, should go here. Um, I got it. Sh- I got it. You get an oh, Anova Suvi stick. You get a big pot. And you get a refrigerator freezer or just a freezer and, and a vacuum sealer and the rest of the money you spend on chuck roast. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of chuck. That is a lot of chuck roast, but it's, it's great. It, the thing is I make a, I make a yogurt and on a keto diet, you can't eat too much yogurt. So I make it with heavy whipping cream, Nice, but it's hard yeah. to make yogurt with heavy whipping cream without yeah, a, a sous vide because it's very touchy on the temperatures. Yeah. Otherwise, it gets a little too watery. Um, I think the rest of the money, though, I, rather than chuck roast, although that's a that's a good plan, I, I I bring it down to the YMCA in Tacoma. There's a uh, they need some technology down there. There's an organization that's working to help keep people from dropping out, and uh, someone Farron Johnson uh, works down there. I'd like to get them a bunch of cameras or phones with cameras, and they can start logging who is attending these various meetings, nice. uh, th- their events. And we're doing some machine learning around that to help identify a kid's at risk from expulsion dropout and arrest. Wow. And if we could uh if we could simplify in some way all of the data gathering which is currently manual, I think that's where I'd spend the rest of that money. That's cool, man. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. And it's it's always interesting to find the the charity you can hang your hat on, right? It's like I understand what these people do, it matters to me, and then you could take your particular unique set of skills and apply them as a volunteer. I think yeah, that's I agree. that's where that's where you really want to take it. And I think, you know, you've done that with humanitarian toolbox yeah. and really brought together a lot of people who can who can use their skills to do really important things. And it, it feels good to use your skills. 
Yeah, it's it's fun too, right? And and mm-hmm. and sort of what's funny, especially on the software side, and, and the, the hardware side is true too. Is when it's not your day to day job, when you're doing it because you want to do it, like it is a volunteer effort. It's even more fun than your job. Yep, right. Like sure you're, is. You're you're a little more liberal and loose, and and plus, all of us work in this tech industry with other tech people. When you go out into the world, they don't know what we do. Like they're they are kind of we're kind of wizards, and so it's you, yeah. you you spend a lot more time educating and helping people understand what you're up to and how these things work, and just you forget how much stuff we know. We know a lot of stuff. It's true. It's it's stunning, and you see these places where a little bit of our effort can make a really giant difference in what's happening in the world, and and that's that's where it's at. P- putting some of those skills to use in in a good way. Yeah, no kidding. Cool stuff. I know we were going to talk about analytics for Team System, but I don't know that we've gotten there yet. So, <laughs> because there's a lot of dashboards of things that are simply built in, right? I mean, is that all you yep. need? Where's the real analysis come in? How do you find new insights? So I, I love what's out of the box. I mean, it's it's there. You've got some really good stuff. But what's happening is that we're able, we can now start to drill in and get some much deeper information when we have that whole end-to-end view. And I'm going to give you just one example. Um, recommending who should do a code review. Hmm. Um, hmm. It, you know, as Capers Jones says, that's the number one way to remove bugs from your code is have a good code review process. Right. So as people put these things together, how do you know who should make a code review? And there's some really interesting machine learning tools that you can use to can reach in and look at who has most recently touched that code, whether there were bugs associated with their code touches, and more importantly, integrate that with their calendar data from Office 365 and say, hey, are they available for a code review? Right. Because code reviews yeah. need to happen in a you know post haste. They can't yeah. wait two days to happen. They need to happen relatively quickly if you're going to get that fast feedback. It's also an interesting acknowledgement within a team that it's one thing to write code and and be bug free. Not that that's possible, but you know, low bug code because you're in a good place where you know what you're doing and, and and so forth. And it's another thing to be good at reviewing code and finding potential problems. Like they're almost two different skills, and they're both very valuable. When you could mm-hmm. surface the ability to review code efficiently and to find problems like that, suddenly it's like I, I need that guy reviewing my code. Like there there are folks in my life where it's just like, would you please look at this because I know you'll make it better. Hmm. Exactly. And they're the ones that can really, uh, you got to keep them on the team and you got to yeah. share that knowledge, pair them with people when they do code reviews or or do group code reviews to to spread that love around because, wow, it's, it's valuable. And, and they're not always that fast a coder either, right? Like some folks really struggle with a blank screen. They put some code in front of them and they do just fine. I end up grabbing those folks and sticking them on like performance tuning teams. The same thing. They're looking at existing code, understanding it and thinking about how to make it better different skill set than blank method now go <laughs> yeah, i have right. never thought of it like that but that is true that's the author versus editor yeah they're, they're different it skills. makes total sense I, I'm the, i've met people that are good at both like those folks exist i don't like them but you know they exist <laughs> but I, I you know the, the challenge here is it's too easy in a team to fall into this trap of the only thing that matters is your ability to write bug-free code the, the ability to fix code, you know, to understand comprehensive problems and so forth, those are valuable too, and you got to celebrate them all. Uh, absolutely. They are 
you deliver code as a team. You don't deliver code as a group of individuals, right. except in very, very rare cases. And leveraging the strengths of the team makes it so valuable. I, I want to throw out a couple I, stupid team tricks. I don't know what you'd call them, stupid dev team <laughs> tricks. But you, you mentioned uh-huh. some, just ways to, to tweak your development teams to help them go a little bit faster or do a little bit better. And because... It is. It's a team-based exercise, yeah. not an individual. Um, I, I want to start with one. And, and again, this breaks from analytics a little bit. I, I promise I'll come back. But the beer column, I think, is is super valuable. Uh, it's on a Kanban board. I was visiting a customer, and I walked by, and they had a whip limit. That's a work-in-process limit on their done column. And and that's ridiculous, right? You you never go beyond your whip limit, and to have a whip limit in done is is crazy. So I kind of thought, well, you probably don't get software development with Kanban very well. And I so I asked, you have a whip limit on your done column. What's going on? And he said, well, what you're missing is our beer column. And I thought, well, tell me more. And he said, when we <laughs> get 10 items in our done column, we pull all of them off, we walk downstairs to the pub, be it nine o'clock in the morning, four in the afternoon, and we buy a round of beer for nice. everyone involved in our software uh-huh. delivery process. <laughs> and and I thought that's kind of neat. That is a, a really good way to kind of get this ceremony and to get this retrospective going. Right. And I and I told him that. And he smiled and said, Yep, not why we did it. But mm. yep, a good side effect. Yeah. Definitely. And so I it's a nice so thing to, said, to well, wrap a social thing? incentive in uh in in an incentive to to do good work yeah and it really is but the reason they did it is because done for them means in production and in their customers hands right and in order to get those 10 items through they were getting them 10 items through in about every two months now they're hitting every three weeks why because the development teams gamed the system you know, they're like, ah, oh, they're going to buy us beer. Let's build smaller units of value and get them to production faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, game the system to the benefit of the company, shipping more features <laughs> sooner. Exactly. You know. and again, it's that falling into the pit of success. And you can do these little levers and twists that can make a team more productive. And when they game the system, you want people to game the system in ways that benefit the company. Yes. And that's right. I think it's a winner all around. Unfortunately, with VSTS, we can't come back and have a beer column. We only get one done column, and that's a pity because I really want to tag a beer column at the end of my VSTS board. But, For sure. Uh, yeah, get what you, you know. You think it, well, it. there's ways the around be, that, though. Yeah, you think the system would be more flexible that you could add that column, really. I know. I want a beer column. Let's go to user yeah. voice. We'll suggest it. <laughs> Well, you know, you Maybe could always uh, trigger off some process that, you know, gets it outside of VSTS. And, you know, the whole thing is that you want everybody to know, hey, it's beer time. Right. Exactly. It, it, and and, and people to start to behave in ways that allow you to really better the whole team. Um, another, I, someone mentioned this to me, and I love it. I've totally stolen the idea. Um, she was uh, running Lego teams or running scrum teams. And every time they finished a feature, she went out and bought a piece, a, a single Lego piece, a single Lego piece that was kind of 
similar looking potentially to the feature. Like they, you know, got some window Lego pieces when they did their windows upgrade or whatever. And, and she'd hand out those Lego pieces and people would use them every time they finished a user story, they'd get a Lego and they'd build something creative on their desk. And, and I thought that was another interesting one, but what made it so special is that when new people joined the team, everyone would break off a Lego piece and bring it over and give it to the new person on the team. And it's kind of that huh. team building thing, that, that hack to really get the teams working together. I, I, I love those, those hacks, those team hacks. Yeah. And very powerful stuff, right? It, it just things that make it pop. And, it, and always important to, to include food in the equation, right? It's like <laughs> humans are so hardwired to trust people they break bread with. And that bread yep. can take the form of pizza. But, you know, yep. that that seems to be the important part. It's like you building up trust amongst the team, not just from the work you do, but how you take a break and how you celebrate. It's it's a it's an amazing thing. And that's why it's fun working in a team. There's yeah, nothing sure. better than delivering software as a group. I, I, I love that co-located, that good feeling. But let me go back to metrics. Let me go back to analytics mm -hmm. and, and, and talk a little there. I what we're working there's there's a project we're working on that I absolutely love. And it's figuring out how many bugs we have released to production that have not yet been found. What? <laughs> how, can you, how can you count something you haven't found? How do you determine how many bugs are out there that you haven't found? Right. And it is really an interesting process. There's a there's a book, How to Measure Everything, right. by, or How to Measure Anything, by a guy named Douglas Hubbard. And he, he kind of brings up some of the basic foundations for it. But you can use looking at your code base, looking at your check-ins, looking at the way people are testing and where those tests hit the code base. Um, you can start to use some relatively... I don't want to say advanced statistical techniques, but some interesting statistical techniques to start to determine what have we missed potentially? How many bugs are out there that we didn't catch? And it's actually really easy to explain. Um, if you go to Fish and Wildlife um, and you ask them how many, how many fish are in this lake, you know, they don't, you know, go out and throw, you know, 200 sticks of dynamite into the lake and count the dead fish that rises to the surface. They go out and they catch, you know, a thousand fish. And they tag those thousand fish and throw them back in, wait for an amount of time for them to circulate, and then they catch another thousand fish. And if those second ones, only a hundred of them are tagged, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, might be 10,000 fish in the lake or kind of thereabouts. Right. And we can take those same statistical techniques and bring them to bear against software. And that's interesting. Yeah. I think that's interesting. There's still a little, uh, wonkiness in some of our results, but, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's doable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ab absolutely. It's, it's doable. It's just a question of figuring out metrics that matter, right? Like I, there's always so much sensitivity around bugs because they, the way they're, they're criticisms, right? These are mistakes that were made, so to speak. I, I guess the challenge is building a culture that tolerates the fact that these mistakes exist and we should just fix them. It's not a big deal. Mm. Again, that's that team culture, right? Mm. Get those people to figure out how to have a, you know, a safe to fail environment. How can they do something that's risky and fail? Frankly, if you're not, if you're not pushing yourself and failing, you're probably not delivering as much value as you should. Right. And so get that, get those teams to kind of push on those levers and fail occasionally. Yeah, I guess it's, it's can we get create instrumentation to show that we're running that line? Like, it would be interesting to look at stats and say, we're not taking enough risks, as opposed to looking at stats and saying, we're taking too many risks. 
I wonder how you'd get there because yeah. I would love to be there. That sounds like an interesting, a real interesting metric to, to kind of walk that line on that, that edge of chaos, if you will, or that complexity boundary where you're really, you're pushing the envelope, but you're not going over. So I've definitely run into situations where you can see a group of developers that are sandbagging, like they could be delivering more than they are, but they're, they're cushioning their, their estimates and they're delivering, you know, really under time and taking their time. And, you know, you, you, well, on one hand, it's like the quality of their work is good. It's just not as much as it could be. Yeah. And this, if you could find some way to help give them that confidence they need to deliver more aggressively, yeah. they'd probably break out of it. Sandbagging is probably the wrong word. I, I think people really honestly try to do their best. Sure. But they're held back by, by something, by the culture in the organization or by something. Well, it's risk, of, it's risk aversion more than anything in my mind. It's just like the, the consequences of failure are, so extreme or perceived to be so dangerous that nobody's willing to take a chance. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. That's probably the case. I, 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 there's one, another place I got to tell a story. I was working with a guy named Tommy Norman, who's uh, uh, another MVP and, and out of his company, um, they did something that I thought was very interesting. The testers on the scrum teams had a work in process limit of a single bug. Wow. So once they found a bug, that was it. There was no going looking for any other bugs. So mm. at that point, they would go preempt the developers. Quality was, you know, job one kind of a thing. And they'd walk over to the developer, sit next to them, and would show the developer the bug. The developer would fix the bug. They'd prove it was fixed with a little bit of testing. Right. And they'd check in the code. And then they'd go back and look for new bugs. And it was crazy. The quality coming out of that organization is is astounding. But more importantly, the speed coming out of that organization is astounding. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, Capers Jones, again, kind of the granddaddy of metrics in, in software del delivery, says that the number one correlated metric to speed of delivery is quality. Right. And so we think we can trade off quality and get some extra velocity. You know, we'll just write some really cruddy code, take on some technical debt and get it out the door. That only works for one or two sprints and then you're stuck. Yeah. Then it's, then everything slams to a stop. Yep. So as long as you're leaving after this sprint, no problem. <laughs> but yeah, you know, they, they, these things come back to rest. You start building unstable code. I just wonder how visible that is. You know, what does that measurements look like that you could say, okay, I could see how these things are unstable. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that measure comes from, but mm -hmm. uh, something I'm willing to take a look at. I, I'd be curious to, sure. to dive into that, see what, see what people on the team here think about that. Do, um, with VSTS, you have your feedback mechanisms coming from production. So errors occurring on, on the servers, errors occurring on the client. Does that get visualized as well? Like there's one thing to have a bug, like the app has crashed. It's another thing is it's just not working right. Yes. Um, I use app insights for that predominantly. So we feed back application insights and then that comes back into VSTS. Right. So we're basically instrumenting what's in production. Uh, OMS has some nice integrations as well. Um, and so we can find out what's happening and push it back as into, into VSTS too. That's uh, the cloud management tool? Oh, uh, um, it, yes. And I'm going to not know what the acronym stands for. Yeah. Operations management suite. <laughs> Operations management <laughs> suite. That's it. <laughs> yep. So, and of course, you'd know that uh, being the being the run as radio. Yeah, well, and the, the the crazy thing with OMS is not just about managing Azure; it'll handle AWS and and third party uh, other cloud services as well. So you know, is it the same as SCOM? 
operations manager is much more focused on the on-premise instrumentation of servers. Okay. Right. OMS is, uh, okay, I have this stuff running in AWS CC2, and I have this stuff running on uh, in Azure Blob Storage, and, like, it can see all of that, which is the scope of of what OMS is trying to do is, is staggering. And I don't know that it's delivering on everything, but it's, you know, typical Microsoft. They are thinking big. (laughs) <laughs> Azure is thinking big. Yeah. I I am blown away by by Azure. And I see people moving to VSTS off of TFS sometimes because there's this perception that they're going to be able to do things in Azure better than they would if they were running TFS on premises. And and I'm not sure if it's true, but that perception is one that is driving people up to VSTS. And the biggest shift I see is development teams moving from this on-premises, limited resources mindset yeah. to this mindset of bounty. And there's so much capacity up here in the cloud that we can make decisions differently. Yeah. yeah I think that's the, the, the big piece of that. I mean, one part of me wonders if you move to VSTS, obviously immediately you get the new version. So it's always going to be newer than the TFS infrastructure you were running. But now... You know, are you going to keep up when those buttons move, when those new features come out? Can you actually pay attention to them enough to see, oh, this is a new way we can do things? Like it does sound like there is a commitment to learning here uh, as these new tools come into play. I think that's I think that's the case. I think it's always the case for developers. We've got to be learning, right? We've yeah. got to have our plural site subscriptions. We've got to have our you know reading MSDN. We've got to be fully engaged in that learning process. Um, because otherwise we're not, we can't leverage some of the new stuff. Now it doesn't mean we all need to be bleeding edge, right? No. We don't have to sit on that edge. But no betas, right? Like, not shipping, necessarily. Shipping software, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. But the thing, what thing about these cloud services things is that it's all shipping, right? Like it, you don't see it until it's effectively shipped. Uh, and there is a risk there because I've certainly felt and I, I've, I've read, I've talked to other people like that. We're getting beta tested on a lot these days. <laughs> you know, new features are showing up in the cloud and they're not fully baked. <laughs> Testing in production. Yeah, effectively, right? Yep. And, and But I have to say, is is that where the world's going and should it be going there? Because in some, time, in some cases, being able to get that feedback from production is extraordinarily valuable. And you just can't get some of that at the scale of individual testers inside your organization. Right. So if you can instrument your code well enough that you're catching issues before your customers realize that they are issues and flip them over or roll something back or, or, or do some, take some sort of action that resolves that problem, you know, you might, you might be better off doing some of that testing in production. Sure. Now, I like the dashboard approach and the sort of uh, integrate first mindset where the new features is in the code, even if it's turned off so that you can you really can run individual tests. We're going to run this for an hour on one server and watch what happens kind of thing. So you're not affecting everybody. You're just a a subset at any given time. Um, That's very DevOpsy, right? Like you're very much working side by side with operations guys looking at a part what is effectively a partially built feature. Right. And you can use tools like launch darkly to kind of hide those pieces and expose them only to certain users. And, and, and you know, your beta testers can get access early to other things. Hugely important. Yeah. yeah. And, and with tools like I, I've got to say, service fabric is blowing me away out in Azure because you can roll out your updates to small portions of the, your user base who can then 
try it out and use it and you can set up some basically quality gates and, and statistical gates. And if they pass those gates, it'll roll out to a wider audience right. until it rolls out all the way through. But if, if for some reason, you know, something happens on those actors or those services that the, it's behaving differently than you would expect, it just rolls it right back out nice. and no one notices. Yeah. You, you almost can't tell, right? Uh, back in the old days when we cared about the you know, amount of hardware available, we were doing this with features because we were worried about how much load they put on the system. We need to buy more hardware and we didn't know how much to buy. So we would actually run the feature dark and measure how much additional load to put on the servers so that by the time we lit it up, we'd already provisioned sufficiently. But that just doesn't happen anymore in the cloud. Now it's just throw more cloud at it. <laughs> because you can. And frankly, that's a better decision sometimes. I Not always, but the premature, you know, premature optimization is the, the root of all evil or whatever the quote is. I, if you go to the cloud and you could spend two developer weeks to solve a problem, or you could throw another three servers at it for the next six months, it, you know, you can weigh that. It's a cost-benefit analysis now. It's no longer a shoot, we absolutely positively must take this action because we have limited resources. Right. Well, the, th the big thing here is throwing more dev resources at it means actually having to get up from your desk. You can get those digital servers up before you've even turned around. <laughs> right. right. Like it's such a non-thing now to throw more servers at it. Uh, right. You know, everyone talks about automated elasticity. It's like, you know what? We're not, why we're not doing automated elasticity? Because over-provisioning is awesome. Here, <laughs> have more servers. <laughs> hey, hey, guys, I hate to interrupt this love fest because I'm really enjoying listening to you, but uh, it, it's time. I guess it is getting that way, isn't it? <laughs> I know. We could go on and on. This is the, See, this is what happens, people, when, when I sit down with Richard at a conference or something and somebody comes and talks DevOps, I'm usually sitting there consuming scotch or wine or something and just listening in, and uh, it's amazing. You guys are awesome. Thanks, Stephen. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, I know I interrupted you there at the end. Is there any one last thing that you want to throw in before we wrap it up? You, you know, I want to throw in one more thing. It's a plug for VSTS. I uh, Just from a financial standpoint, we moved a, a large organization over from TFS to VSTS. And looking at their um, ROI studies, they're going to save $250,000 over the next two years. Nice. Wow. And that's, that's a pretty substantive change in their in their costs. It's not only better, it's not only, I think, faster, it's not only more stable, you don't only get the stuff more quickly, the features, it's a lot cheaper, frankly. It's also yeah. plumbing. So, like, why do you want to own plumbing? You don't want to make your own pipes. Like, wh why? Why would you do that? <laughs> Who would do that? Yeah. Let's, uh, <laughs> Seriously. Do it. Who would run their own exchange server? Nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody does that. That's crazy talk. Who has a server closet? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Steve, thanks again. It's going to be great to see you next time. I don't know when or where, but at some conference somewhere. Maybe Build? Are you going to be at Build? I may, I may be at Build, and I may be at the, might be out in New London, Connecticut for KetoFest. We'll see. Well, that would be awesome. KetoFest.com. Hint, hint. All right. Thanks again, Stephen, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, 
and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.